0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're going to continue our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning. Um, If you've ever had the opportunity, if you're a car guy or maybe a car gal, um, if you've ever had the chance to restore a classic, I mean a classic, not like 1992, which. I guess could be a classic today. Uh, but I mean a classic. Um, if anybody out there has a 69 Shelby Mustang, just let me know. I'll come look at it. But um, as you're going in throughout that process of restoring and of of rebuilding what was once great, um, if you stop at just the outside... Have you fully restored the car? Of course not. right? A, a restoration product project, a rebuilding project is both outside and inside uh, and and perhaps more than the outside. Of course we we want the outside to look nice, right nice and and painted and 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 have the chrome nice and polished and good looking wheels on it and And make sure we have it um, uh, waxed and buffed well. Uh, If you're a real car guy, you spend the time to use the clay bar to get every little imperfection out of the body, right? But if there's no engine inside of that thing, is it going to do much for you? No. If you have no seats to sit on, if you have no steering wheel to turn You've really accomplished very little in terms of restoring your project. You've just scratched the surface. Hopefully not scratched the surface, but, but you know what I'm saying. So far in Nehemiah, what we have seen and considered is a focus on the walls and the rebuilding outside of the city. We, we've spent some significant time looking at why it's important that the, the walls would be built and restored with, with perhaps a slight detour in chapter 5 where we sort of looked internally for a brief minute. But, but we've discussed the potential harm and, and ultimately the ruin that would come to the, the city of Jerusalem and, and to the, the, the uh, heritage and, and the history of the Jewish people. If the walls are not built and the city is not secured. And you remember we, we looked at and thought about how God promised long before the events of the book of Nehemiah that the city would indeed be restored. And, and because he's promised it, he's also promised that Messiah would come. And, and he promised uh, all these things. And he also promises us that he is faithful to his word that it will come to pass. You see, God's promises do not get broken. God's word does not go out and return void. His word does not go unanswered or unfulfilled. And if He has made a promise in His word, it will come to be. And long before Nehemiah ever arrived on the scene... God promised that Jerusalem would be restored. And recognizing this reality, we saw all the way back in Nehemiah two that as he as he has come into the city, he has sort of sort of taken up the mantle, and he's encouraged others to to rebuild with him. And it's that that sort of first introduction to the opposition of Sandballot. Nehemiah chapter two, verse twenty. Nehemiah claims this, he, he professes this, he says that God will make us prosper. Not we'll do it by the strength of our backs, not if we white knuckle and grit our teeth and just, just plow through the tough, toughness that we'll get it done. No, no, he says God, because he has promised that it will happen, God is going to do the work he's going to make us prosper and even as they began the work in chapter 3 and they, they saw the building ongoing and the opposition becoming stronger and stronger when it became more difficult and hard and and even worry and fear began to set in and creep into the the lives and the minds amongst the people Nehemiah again reminds them of this truth in chapter 4 that God will fight for them. You see this ongoing theme in the early parts of the book of Nehemiah, that it is not within the people's ability to build, it is within God's promise that He will do so, that they rest on. Jesus gives us a promise in Matthew 16, when, when talking with the disciples, he asks them a very basic question, but a very revealing question. He asks who people say that he is, and then he asks, who do you say I am? You who've walked with me, you who know me, who who have spent time with me over and over and over again. And Peter makes a declaration that he is Christ the Messiah, the one that was sent by God and Jesus gives us a promise in verse 18. He says that on that declaration and on the foundation, the rock, the, the, the solid foundation of the confession that He is indeed Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He, Jesus, would build His church. That, that in, in, in a manner of speaking, we are let off the hook of trying to build a church or build an organization or, or build a gathering in a group of people because at the end of the day, we have very little to do with the actual process of building. God, through his son Jesus, is building his church. But he's building it in a very specific way. He's building it on the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for those that would make such a a proclamation of their life, for those that would give their lives to that, they are included into this building of the church. But for those that wouldn't, they're not. Here, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who has is gathering a people for himself. The one that that gave up his very life for his people is going to be the one who builds the church. And yet, he invites us into the process. He invites us to participate with him in the building process. And, And there are great pieces to that great work, that important work, as we looked at last week, that a life surrendering is necessary to that work, that that there is a significance that that we must bear on our lives as if it depends all on us to build. As Nehemiah last week would not be distracted or led astray. We build to protect and to defend. But as we've considered all up to this point, this has all taken place outside on the walls. This week in Nehemiah 7, and really to the to the rest of the book, what we will look at and consider is a building within. The, the narrative shifts from outside the walls to now inside where where we're going to look at a rebuilding within the people themselves because see a city and this is true of anywhere not just old testament jerusalem but but a city at its core is about people a city at its core is the people Sure, there are buildings and parks and roads and and other infrastructure that make up a city, but without people, it's really not much at all. See, those buildings those parks and that infrastructure serve the people of the city. They are a benefit to the people. In fact, without the people those things would actually not be there because how do they come to be? They're built by people. We consider and think about the church in the exact same way. The the church is a people, not a building, not a structure. It's not about a property or any other sort of asset that That you might accumulate as a body of people that without people occupying this building, this space, it's just a building. Who makes up the building is what makes it unique. Who occupies the building is what makes it significant. Nehemiah here is going to turn his focus from rebuilding outside to rebuilding inside inside and and really that's the whole story of Nehemiah. It's the whole point of this book that that is, is it's helpful to, for us to understand that God is trying to rebuild his people. the the narrative of rebuilding the wall outside is used as sort of an object lesson but at the heart of this book and at the heart of the Bible, we see that God is making an appeal to people to rebuild their lives. Because at the end of the day, people's lives are much more important than buildings and structures. A good friend of mine, David Miller, is a pastor here in town. He says this about this passage. God cares about the people in a city because he made them in his image and they will live eternally in one of two places forever. But the infrastructure will become wood, hay, and stubble. This building will not last. There will come a day where it will deteriorate to such a point That it will be reclaimed by the ground through which it was erected. And yet, the people inside of it face eternity in one of two places. And that's where we want to focus on. I think my friend David is right that if we miss the point of this book and what it means for our lives, both personally and individually, but also what it means for our life corporately as a church body. That if we miss the point of this book, we will really miss the heart of God, which which is to make a people holy and sanctified and set apart for Himself, who will spend eternity with Him one day. Nehemiah is going to confront us from, from here on out. We'll see a, a, a piece of it this morning in Nehemiah 7, but for the rest of the book, Nehemiah is going to confront us. And it's going to give us a good opportunity to look at ourselves internally. We're going to ask questions like, what does a life devoted to the Lord actually mean? What does a life lived in service to the Lord actually mean? And am I doing that presently? If you've read ahead and you've looked at Nehemiah chapter 7, you see a majority of it is a list of names. Uh, I want to put your mind at ease this morning. I'm not going to attempt that list of names. Um, This this week in my office, I read through it, and it took me about 20 minutes to get through that list of names. And we just don't have the time for that. Um, However, we do want to consider a few things in this chapter. In fact, there's four points that we're going to see this morning as we consider Nehemiah 7 and the rebuilding within. Number 1 is this. What we see first happen is the installing of leadership. The installing of leadership. Look at verse 1. Nehemiah 7. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hanani, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So what's happened here? The, The walls are up, the gates are up, things are restored. Now the city has to actually function. Things have been built. Things have been restored. The, the, um, the, the process now that would follow is for the city to begin to operate, to function as a city. Because if it just sits there stagnant, if, if nothing else happens, the, the walls go up, but then there's no other organization that's done, then it, it really is, is purposeless. It has, has no significance. It serves no, no purpose. And and it can't be a free-for-all, right? You can't just have people running around doing whatever it is that they want to do. There's, there has to be some sort of sense of law and order. And so Nehemiah here, as the governor who has been appointed to this region, acts in appointing others to aid him in the process. See, he recognizes the necessity to appoint other leadership. It cannot be done alone. We're not meant to do things alone. God has not designed us in our our DNA to do things alone. We have a, uh, a, a wonderful part of us in our construction and makeup to be in fellowship with one another, but then also to lead in cooperation with others. That to do things alone, to try to lead and and carry out authority by yourself can be crushing to an individual. And, And we see great wisdom here in Nehemiah that he has this ability to delegate authority. It's a great mark of of wisdom and of responsibility to recognize, hey, I cannot do this on my own, so I'm going to find some help. There's great wisdom in that. We employ the same mentality when we think of how we organize our church. See, one lone man cannot effectively lead the body of Christ with all of the weight and the authority and the responsibility of that body on his shoulders. One man can't do it alone. It will crush him. And I've seen this happen time and time and time again. There's There are different uh, ecclesiological, uh, which is a big fancy word for how the church is organized. There's There are different... Um, models that are used within churches and for a long, long, long time, the solo pastor CEO model, sometimes called the Moses model, although I would object to that and you'll see why in just a minute. But but the solo CEO model, the, the one guy in charge and he has all the authority and the word and buck stops with him, that will destroy an individual over time because the weight and the responsibility and the spiritual weight and responsibility that comes with the office of pastor or overseer is great to bear and it will crush him in Exodus 18 we see the perfect example in Moses he has a sole singular leader that God had raised up to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. In Exodus 18, we see him engaging in the task of, of overseeing the people and their problems. In fact, his father-in-law approaches him and he, he observes that, that Moses basically spends his days sitting with the people of Israel, hearing their problems and trying to point them to the Lord. And can you imagine, maybe some of you do this, but can you imagine for for 10, 12, 15 hours a day having people just come to you and unload their burdens on you, the, the deepest spaces of their heart and of their soul, and then they leave, and this happens seven days a week. It would put an immense amount of burden and stress on you. That's what's happening to Moses. And so Moses, father-in-law, recognizing what will happen. The quick burnout that would come as a result of, of ongoing structure encourages him to appoint others that would aid him in what he's doing. And Moses agrees and he takes him upon it. And we see that he raises up other leadership to help him. I believe as you read the New Testament and the epistles that the implication is clear that as a church, we are to organize ourselves into a plurality of, of elders and of pastors and of, of overseers. It's, it's, it's all the same word, same office. And that is what is most effective in leading God's people here. In Nehemiah 7, he finds two guys who he can raise up and trust and give them some authority to aid him as he seeks to lead the people. And there are two qualifications that he gives there in verse 2. Two things we see. First, we see that they were faithful. Specifically, he's talking about Hanani. He says that he was a faithful and God-fearing man. The word faithful there in the Hebrew is the word emeth. And it means to be firm or to be true, to be dependable. It actually originates from the Hebrew word aman, which is where we get the word amen. And, and that word really means to confirm. It, it's, it's the way you, you end something and you confirm it. It's really not an overly spiritual idea. The, the Greek word uh, would mean really the same thing, true and dependable and firm. It's the idea that when you say, "I'm going to leave at such and such a time, that you actually leave at such and such a time. That when you have a meeting somewhere and you are the meeting is supposed to start, at a specific time you're not strolling in 5 minutes after or 10 minutes after that that to be faithful to be a meth to be firm and true and dependable means that you will do what you say you will do that you're dependable but the un- the other qualification that's given here is to be god-fearing he says that he is a more faithful and god-fearing man than many god-fearing again the the hebrew word that's used here is the word yira and it means having a reverence and an awe but it also means literally to be afraid to be in fear I think in our day and age, we've lost this a bit. That we don't have a healthy fear of God. Do you realize that there is a God, a being, that at the snap of his fingers, not even the snap of his fingers, at the very breath of his word, your life is over. That, that the condemnation that would come as a result of your sin in an eternal hell is a is the God in whom we serve. There is there is to be a right fear of God that we I think have just lost a bit in our day and age. There is a right to reverence that is lost in our day and age. A healthy fear, a yirah, comes as a recognition of His awesomeness and His. Power, which then leads us to worship and obedience. He's in the room this morning, and I did not tell him I was going to do this, but growing up as a child, I had a healthy fear of my father. Because believe it or not, I was, I had my moments where. I could be a bit of a handful. And my father um, would remind me that he is not afraid to use the paddle of education to put me back in line. And although I knew he loved me, it wasn't a... It wasn't uh, an abusive or, or emotionally um, hostage-taking type of relationship. He loved me enough that he was willing to beat me senseless so that my behavior would be put back in line. There is a right and reverent fear that we should have to our God. because he is a God who is all-powerful and all-holy. And although with my dad we're in a very different type of relationship today, I still love him and recognize the authority that he has and he holds. And it's led me to a point where I respect him, the relationship that we have with our Lord should lead us to a right and reverent fear of awe that then leads us to worship and obedience to him. These two men were faithful and they were God-fearing. Interestingly, he, he actually designates that, that Hanani was feared God more than most. He was, he was sort of set apart. He was distinguished in this character trait of fearing God more than most. Could that be said of your life this morning? To, to, a, to a watching world, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, to a to a watching world, and even a, a watching church body as your life is observed by others within the body of Christ, are you a distinguished Person who fears God more than most, or is your life marked with sort of this irreverence to who a holy God is? The New Testament gives us a few other qualifications for leaders. Faithfulness and God fearing are a big part of this. They're, they're sort of a summarization of this, but we we have in terms of the the multiplying leadership. There's, there's some qualifications that we consider in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes this. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, that overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. He continues on in this list in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, Paul writing to Titus says that he left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in every town. Verse 6 of chapter 1 in Titus. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For a seer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word taught, as so, uh, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it the qualifications that we see in the New Testament for those who would lead the church, interestingly, as you examine other Scriptures and dig into what God's Word would sort of prescribe the Christian life to look like, these traits are not at all unique. They're not not designated for a specific individual. It's what every follower of God should look like. It's what every person who would call themselves to be a believer should look like. The only, you don't believe me, check it for yourself. The only distinct trait given between the qualifications for an elder and overseer and what the rest of the the Christian life should look like is the ability to teach. That's it. That's it. Notice, too, that this appointment to leadership is not based on skill, ability, education, social standing, or any other qualifier that mankind would try to place there. It is based solely on the spiritual condition of the individual, that's it. You don't have to have a doctorate in deep theology to be appointed to a place of leadership within the church. You just have to have a heart that loves Jesus. You have to have the ability to stand distinguished as a God-fearer. Number two, we see not just the installing of leadership, but we see the issuing of directions. Look at verse 3, Nehemiah 7. He says, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes we see this this issuing of directions but it's not just any directions they are taking an intentional action see in those days as the the gates would have opened up it would have been done at first light you know maybe you're awake at this time but there's something special about seeing just that first ray pop over the horizon as the sun is coming up things, begin to become visible from the night. That's when the gates would have opened, is at the, the dawn of first light, just as the sun peaks up over the horizon. The problem is, in that uh, sort of situation, visibility is still low. You know this to be true. If you've seen the sun rise, at, at first light, you can sort of see things, But visibility is still low, and especially if you live in an area that is prone to fog and to haze, it's especially low. What is still on the mind of Nehemiah is that danger is close. That although the walls have been built, the the city has been secured, the gates are in place, there are still those outside the city that are seeking to harm them. There are those outside the city that are seeking to unravel and dismantle all the work that is being done to restore the city. And so here, Nehemiah makes this intentional decision. He says that when the sun is hot, let the gates open. When it's nice and sunny out, when you have good daylight, when you can see and have clarity and visibility around you, then open the gates. And he says the same thing, and the saint uses the same idea to close too. He says that while you are still on guard, while they're still there, while the sun is still up, close the gates. Don't wait till nighttime. Close the gates while the sun is still up, while there's still daylight. He also instructs to appoint guards at various places around the city. Some have a specific place, a specific point that they are to stand. Some are simply there in front of their homes, keeping watch. What what I think this means is, I think this is a picture of what our life is to look like in setting up boundaries for ourselves. Or if not setting up new boundaries, at least perhaps adjusting boundaries that we currently have in our life. Because, see, the, the reality is is the Christian life is a life of intentionality. Spiritual growth and faith does not happen by accident. God has called us to, to seek to live and grow in holiness and in righteousness. And if we are going To do that as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be taking intentional steps towards those things. Setting up boundaries in our lives that would uh, cause us to pursue and and track towards those things. Jesus calls this an act of self-denial. The intentional act of setting aside our wants and our desires and pursuing what He has called us to pursue Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he died for all and all that, that those who might live no longer live for themselves but for him for the sake of uh, for those that died and was raised. John the Baptist confessed in, uh, this about Jesus in John 3 that he must increase and I must decrease. Hebrews 12 tells us to strive For holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul again writes that God has not called us to a life of impurity, but a life of holiness. And lastly, in 1 Peter, Peter writes, "...therefore preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We've been called to a life pursuing holiness. And if you seek to grow in holiness, as the Bible calls us to, there must be intentional boundaries that are set up in your life. It might mean changing a routine in your life. It might mean going against what would be the norm, like opening the gates at first light. It might mean stopping a certain behavior or habit. It might mean creating a new behavior or habit. It might mean not hanging around the group of people that you hang around with. It might mean not listening to the music that you listen to. It might mean not watching the things that you watch or reading the things that you read. It might mean that you have to surrender some things in your life. If you're going to set up boundaries that would cause you to grow and pursue holiness, a good rule of thumb to live by is this. That if it robs you of your affections for Jesus, if it does not point you to Jesus, it's not helping you grow in holiness, and it needs to be cut out. See, I imagine there were some people that were not really happy with the decision to change the gate times. Perhaps in the early morning when there was low visibility, people might have used that time to try and pull a fast one or get away with something that Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten away with. They might have used it as a perfect opportunity to sneak around when no one was able to see clearly. I wonder how many of us operate under that same mentality. That in in kind of the spaces of our lives, we, we operate under the veil of haziness and low light because it's harder to get caught. It's time to set up some boundaries in our life. It's time to set up the boundaries that God has called us to in living a life of holiness, and living a life of righteousness. And the, the wonderful and beautiful thing is that Christ has completed all of these things in His life so that we could pursue them in our lives. And the more that we give ourselves to Him, the more that we set up our boundaries in life on Him, the better able we are going to be able to grow and seek a life of holiness and of righteousness. But the gate times have to change. They have to change. Perhaps it's time to reorient our life so that Clear and distinct boundaries and guards are set up rather than just sort of drifting along hoping that we'll find it one day or hoping that it will just sort of arrive at our feet one day. There's an intentional boundary. Direction's given. Number three, there is the initiating of a gathering. The initiating of a gathering. Verse four Poses an interesting problem, and when it's one that's going to get dealt with later on in further chapters, but verse four reads this: "It says the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built here." This this great. Work had been done to restore the city. Now that the city is restored, there's no one to occupy it. It's a bit of a tell in our day and age. The church is wide and large, and yet there's no one to occupy. People are departing from the faith left and right day by day. I just saw a statistic from the Southern Baptist Convention that since 2019, just a few years ago, baptisms overall are down almost 50%. We're not reaching people. We're not evangelizing people. We're not taking the gospel out to the lost. It's far and wide, and yet there's no one to fill it. And so verse 5, Nehemiah says, My God put in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up from the first, and I found in it written, see this had been done just a few hundred years ago, when Ezra led the first group of exiles, he named them and, and, and set them up into categories according to their genealogy, and they used this same method that works for their culture in addressing who the people are and where they come from. And if you read through the, these verses, all the way up until uh, verse 66, you see that it says, "...the whole assembly together..." was 42,360 people. And then if you add in their servants, their male and female servants, it comes out to somewhere around 49,000 people. You say, oh, goodness, 49,000 people, that sounds like a lot of people. i just put some perspective on it for you. Within our zip code of 33919, which, which is our sort of immediate area that goes to Gladiolus, I believe, and then it goes up to Colonial Boulevard, up the McGregor Corridor, and sort of up Summerlin, out to Boy Scout. That's the, that's the, the zip code for 33919. Within that zip code, there's about 32 or 33,000 people, give or take. About two-thirds of the number represented here in Nehemiah. It's really not all that impressive of a number. That's the point that we're to make. We're to understand that it's not very significant. And so God puts it in the heart of Nehemiah to gather and assemble people. And in a similar way, for us who have been called by God into His kingdom, those that are children of God, we have this sort of divine genealogy on our lives as well. He has called us to gather. He's called us to assemble. He's called us to meet together to worship Him corporately. The Greek word is the word ekklesia. It literally means the called out ones. It's the word that is used in the New Testament for the word church. Ekklesia, the called out ones. We are commanded in the New Testament to, to gather together with one another. And in these gatherings, we are to do a few things that God's Word gives some prescription to. Number one, we're to worship God and make much of Him. Number two, we're to receive the Lord's Supper. Number three, we are to preach and proclaim the Word of God. Number four, we are to celebrate a new life in Christ by way of believer's baptism. Number five, we are in to encourage and exhort one another unto the Lord. And that's not an exhaustive list. There are many other things that we are to do, but we are to gather and do it. And that's what we seek to do here at Redeemer Church. We're not here because it's Tradition. We're not here because there's nothing better to do on a beautiful Sunday morning like we've had this morning. We gather together. We come together as a unified membership under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ to seek to accomplish these things. And we are to invite and gather others into our fellowship that they might share In these things as well. That they might participate. And become a part of this fellowship. We engage in evangelism. To try to reach the lost. And make disciples. As Jesus Christ has commanded us to. Because after all. Our church is far and wide. And there are few to fill it. There is a gathering that is initiated. Then the last thing that we see is an infusion of resources. Look at verse 70. It says, Now some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, fifty basins, thirty priest garments, and five hundred minus of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work twenty thousand derricks of gold and twenty two thousand two hundred minus of silver. What the rest of the people gave was twenty thousand derricks of gold, two thousand minus of silver, and sixty-seven priests' garments. Any functioning organization needs resources to operate. It's just the way it goes. If you've ever owned a business, you know that business doesn't go very far unless you have resources to make it operate. Even here in the city, as as Jerusalem is becoming more and more established and leadership has been appointed and and directions have been given on how the gate is to operate, and you see that the, the people are being gathered by number, and they realize, hey, we need some resources to operate. We need We need to engage in some commerce here. And so as it's beginning to become reestablished, there's a reality that sets in that resources are slim. And so the people sacrifice their own personal resources that the city's treasury might grow again. And at the risk of talking about money in church, I want to just encourage a couple of things this morning. Talking about money in church is never an easy thing. In fact, it is probably the most avoided topic by pastors today. Well, you, well that may not be true, actually. But at one point in time, it was not a a common thing to be talked about. and And especially from my seat, as I... Look at what scripture says and, and 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 where it goes and the the topic of money comes up. What I so often am afraid of hearing is the oh great, he's talking about money again. Because there is something within our personal lives where we, we sort of privatize our money. We don't want people to know what we have, we don't want to talk about it. Leave it alone. Here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. And I want to be very clear. I don't know who gives what within our church. I have not touched an offering envelope since I've been here. I don't know who gives what, except for in my own household. And that's all I need to know. But I know there's a great debate in churches today about how to give or how much to give. Certain systems of theology reject the idea of the Old Old Testament tithe, a a 10% of giving, because they say, well, that's an Old Testament practice, and we live in a New Testament era. They uphold the, the teaching of 2 Corinthians 9 as a banner saying, see, the Bible doesn't say a specific amount, it just says that we should give, as long as there's joy in our hearts when we do it, that whatever is between us and the Holy Spirit, we give just whatever we want to. And anything else is just legalism. How are we to think about giving in a church context? Here's, here's a Cliff Notes uh, idea. There's a sermon unto itself. I'm sparing you. Couple principles for us to think about as we give. Number one, we are to absolutely give joyfully. That because God, in his infinite resources, has blessed us in our lives, we are to give back to him as an attitude of worship, not obligation. If if giving of your tithes or offerings is out of a sense of duty and obligation because it's just what we're supposed to do as Christians, right? It's the wrong mentality. You give because God has blessed you abundantly. And so as an act of worship, you want to give back unto him. And we are, number one, to give joyfully, but then number two, we are to give sacrificially giving back to the Lord should cost us something. It should cost us something. We see this principle of the tithe of, 10 for, of 10% all throughout the Old Testament. And actually in the New Testament, what we see people, in, especially in Acts, is they would literally give all that they have. They would give it all to the purpose of the church and in service to the church. It's an act of worship that as we give joyfully unto God, we give in such a way that is sacrificial to us. Because it shows now that we have a dependence on Him that was not there before. That He has blessed us, He has provided for us, And now we are going to give back to him in such a way as if we have to depend on him to sustain us. I love the parable of the widow who gives the two coins. I mean, literally, all that she had left. She empties her bank account and she gives the two coins. Because she had a heart of worship, knowing that God was faithful and would provide. And so she gives. Um, my son, you noticed, is missing some teeth. And I love the heart of a child. Unprompted and think out of the joy of his heart a couple weeks ago at his school they had a missions emphasis week and so there was a a missionary that they came in and the school uh, each um, kind of school age sponsored elementary middle and high school and uh, and so they heard from this guy every week and and talked about bible stories and things like that but as an elementary school they were raising money to to support him It just so happened that week that he lost the tooth. And so the tooth fairy came and left him a little present under his pillow. And without question, I'm so excited the next day to take that money and give it to the missionary. Out of the joy of knowing he was giving it to the Lord, gave it all. We're to give sacrificially in a way that would cause us to depend on him. But then the last principle we're to give generously. If you read the passage in Second Corinthians nine, we read and see that the primary purpose that God blesses us with wealth, is so that that person can be a blessing unto others. I can tell you from personal experience that there is a profound thing. There's a profound blessing that comes when I am giving away more than I am spending on myself. There There is an excitement that creeps up within my soul when I have a chance to provide for someone generously more than myself. And, and, on the, and I've been on the other end too. I've been the recipient of such generosity. And, and I'll admit, there, there was a time in my life where I was a bit embarrassed by it. I didn't want to be that guy who's always needing a handout. And yet as I've grown and as I've matured and as I've come to know the Lord more and more and more, I've seen God work in my life that a right dependence on Him leads others to bless you so that they are blessed by Him. It's a beautiful way that the church is organized. You see, God in His kindness has given me the measure that I have and I ask myself often how can I best use what God has given me for his kingdom now it's not to say that having stuff is bad don't hear me say that but even in buying your stuff you can ask the question how can I buy this for God's kingdom how can I use this to advance the gospel? How can I use this to bless the church? Maybe it's buying lunch for someone, a coworker, or a friend, or a family member, and sharing the gospel with them, or maybe it's buying a week's worth of groceries for a person in need. Maybe it's helping to fund a mission trip or or paying for someone that they may go. Bethany and I have both been the recipients of that many, many times. God has blessed us and allowed us to travel to some pretty neat places around the world. And it's been at the generosity of others that we've gone. Maybe it's as simple as realizing that at the end of the month, when everything is settled, you could actually give just a little more than you thought. We recently had an opportunity as a church to engage in this generosity when we collected money to send to Kentucky to help those that were affected by the tornadoes back in December. And I want to just commend you. We were able to send $1,000 to them which will go such a long way to help restore the utter destruction that is there. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, Mayfield, which was the sort of worst-hit area, is still just an utter chaos. We were generous in that. See, with kingdom lenses and hearts that are set on Christ, money really isn't that big of an issue, because at the end of the day, it's all His. He's called us to steward the portions that he's given us and to be faithful with it. But ultimately, when we spend our resources on kingdom work, we receive a great blessing because we're giving it back to the Lord anyway. And so you see this infusion of resources by the people as they seek to rebuild within the walls, rebuilding their lives and And this is just the tip of the iceberg that as we go on in further into Nehemiah, we are going to see over the next few weeks more ways in which we rebuild our lives around His Word, around our confession and what we believe. There is a call to repent of your sin We're going to engage in rebuilding our lives. And of course, the greatest rebuilding of our life that has ever taken place is through the gospel where Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sins. That is the greatest rebuilding of our lives that has happened. And this morning, if you don't know him, if you've never confessed your sins, if you've never taken a chance to... um, or you never realized before that you are indeed a sinner. I want to invite you to call out to him this morning. Because before you can rebuild any other part of your life, that has to be the first block laid is recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a great Savior. And you have an opportunity even right now to confess that sin to turn your life over to the Lord and see what great blessing he has in store for you. Because there's nothing like a life lived in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the the encouragement we find in it and for the way you speak to us, Father. The the rebuilding of our lives and the the hard and sometimes difficult work that that encompasses and yet it is worth it because a life in you is worth it. God, I pray that we would be diligent to, to seek to live a life that would be distinguished amongst others that we are faithful God-fearers. God, I pray that we would live a life that would be distinguished amongst others that we have set up boundaries within our lives that would pursue you amongst all other things that we would be uh, guarded against those that would rob our affections for Jesus gotta pray that we would be faithful to the gathering and that we would we would invite others to to participate and to to be a part of our gathering gotta pray that we would be generous with what you've been what you've given us that the the stewardship of the resources by which you have you have given us would be for your kingdom only. And Father, we love you. I thank you for this time. We recognize that we are not alone, that there are churches that are gathered all over our area. I pray that you have been honored and glorified amongst those bodies as well. I pray that you were honored and glorified amongst this body. Father, this morning. And God, even now as we depart and leave, would you help us to to set our hearts and our minds on you? God, we thank you for your love and your grace. it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.